morning's reading is from Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created me, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. You saw, your, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lindsay. You'll find a a rather extensive sermon outline uh, in the new sheet, and uh, I estimate it will be finished by about uh, half past five. So if you've brought a packed lunch, don't eat it too quickly because you might get hungry later on. Well, I've summarised the message of the psalm, you search me and know me. If only you would slay the wicked, search me and know me. It's tempting, isn't it, to treat the book of Psalms uh, rather like a box of chocolates where you can choose the ones you like and leave the ones you don't like for other people. Indeed, that's uh, a very tempting way to treat the whole Bible, to have our favorite memory verses and just ignore the bits we don't particularly like. We 
do the same with people, don't we? A selective enjoyment and some distaste, perhaps. But the comfort is they do it with us as well. You search me and know me. And what powerful words they are. Because here we learn that no one knows us as well and as deeply as God knows us. We don't know ourselves as well and as deeply as God knows us. Because God is not just a casual passerby, if you like, who occasionally looks our way. No, verse one, you have searched me and you know me. Isn't that extraordinary? You have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit, when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar, you discern my going out, my lying down, you're familiar with all my ways. Before his word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Why, often words are on our tongue before we know they're going to be there. Isn't that right? My father used to say all the time, think before you speak. It was a vain instruction in my case. And don't we find that words are on our lips before we've even thought that we need to say these words? I find that words of revenge are quickly on my lips before I've thought about them. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. We think of the world in a self-centered way. We think we are our own world. And the question for us, we think, is, can we make room for God in our world? That is exactly wrong. The question is, what space has God made for us in his world? We know, don't we, if, we, if we've been to school recently, uh, that the earth is not the center of the universe. Though when I was going to school, that was still being debated. I think it's finally been resolved. The earth is not the center of the universe. But that's the way we think and talk. We talk about space being out there, as if we're at the center. And we tend to live our lives the same way. We are self-centered beings rather than God-centered beings. For in fact, there's nowhere you can go from the presence of God. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The prophet Jonah tried to run away from God and didn't get very far uh, because God sent a storm and a rather big fish to get him back. 
If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, that's going east. If I settle on the far side of the sea, that's west. Even there, your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. So there's no escape that way or that way or that way or that way. Sorry, that way or that way. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. This is bad news, of course, for the convinced atheist who is lying peacefully in his or her coffin, finding peace at last, rest in peace, they said. And all of a sudden, there's a on the coffin and the angel says time to get up God wants to meet you I don't believe in God bad luck for you created me my inmost being knit me together in my mother's womb I'm I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made your works are wonderful I know that full well you may say in verse 15, well, I'm not sure that I was made in a secret place in the depths of the earth. That just means that our conception, the moment of our conception, is not easily known. Your eyes saw my unformed body all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I'm awake, even it could be when I wake on the last day, I am still with you. If you've got God packaged, you've got God wrong. God is always bigger than we are. We cannot contain our, our understanding or our thoughts about him. It's not that we should find room for God in our lives, but that God in his mercy finds room for us, makes room for us in his universe. You search me and know me. And then the difficult bit if only you would slay the wicked. How much better this psalm would be if we could just leave out those verses, wouldn't it? A much happier psalm, an easier psalm, a more comfortable psalm. So two contemporary issues I think this psalm raises. Uh, you know me, is that good news or bad news? Sometimes it's good news, isn't it? How wonderful that God understands us deeply and personally. How wonderful that every day we live, every moment we live, is a loving gift of a loving heavenly Father. How wonderful to live in a world which is contained, controlled, lived in by God, in which he's made space for us to live in as well. What a great comfort that is. You searched me and you know me. Someone knows me, God knows me. But also, of course, the other side of it is, 
it's a bit frightening. Because often we, we like to play the secrecy game with people where we don't reveal things about ourselves. We, we live that way where we keep parts of ourselves quiet and hidden. It's a kind of power game, I think. And sometimes we play the same game with God and try to keep ourselves hidden from God. But actually, there's no escape. No way of doing things, being things, thinking things that God doesn't know. So, the psalm is bad news, I think, for those who think that human beings, we are self-creating beings and there's no room for God in our lives or in our world. It's bad news if you think that way. But, like all bad news, it's better to face it than run from it. It won't go away. And what about slaying the wicked? Uh, just after Christmas, I was given a present, uh, a used jigsaw puzzle, a very complex jigsaw puzzle. And the person who gave it to me very kindly said, uh, there's actually one piece missing. So you think, is it worth spending 14 hours of my life putting together this jigsaw puzzle knowing it can never be perfect? Uh, so I haven't tried. <laughs> but when you're doing a jigsaw puzzle, it's really important, isn't it, to find how this piece relates to all the other pieces. That's the whole point of a jigsaw, isn't it? You've got this piece, it's got a foot on it. And you think, now where does that fit in to the whole jigsaw? And that's what I want to do with uh, these verses from Psalm 139 to ask the question, where, how do they fit into the jigsaw of the whole Bible? First of all, let's think of them in the jigsaw, the whole jigsaw of the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms isn't just about us, though it's comforting when it is about us. It's also a book about God and the coming Messiah, his son. And the two Psalms which are quoted most frequently in the New Testament are Psalms 2 and Psalms 110. Psalm 2, you are my son, ask me, I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son who'll be angry, or he'll be angry, and your way will lead to destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. There is no refuge in God's universe from God. There is only refuge in God's universe in God, or in the language of the book of Revelation, the only escape from the wrath of the Lamb, that is the wrath of the Lord Jesus, is through the blood of the Lamb shed for us on the cross. Or Psalm 110, you might remember Psalm 110 is quoted by the Lord Jesus 
to show that David, the King David, has a Lord and that Jesus himself is that Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, David says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord is at your right hand. He'll crush kings on the day of his wrath. He'll judge the nations heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. So the book of Psalms is more than a book of spiritual comforts and sweeties. The book of Psalms is also about God and his rule of the world through his son, the Messiah he has appointed. Then notice that the psalm is a psalm of David, and actually in the Old Testament, the king had the responsibility of imposing justice and punishment. If the king didn't organize justice and punishment, then it wouldn't happen. Notice too in the Old, in, in the Old Testament that God constantly warns that he will not be defeated but will defeat the wicked, the bloodthirsty people who speak against him, misuse his name, hate him and rebel against him. Notice these are not ignorant enemies, but those who know God. They misuse his name. And rather than loving God, they hate God. And it's not just a kind of momentary lapse on their part. They rebel against him. It's long-term, knowing, intentional rebellion against God. And notice, too, that David here is not acting against these people. He's asking God to deal with them. And although these words in the Psalms are often called curses, they're not, it's not a curse psalm. A curse is when you curse somebody and the curse has power. But what David is doing is begging God for justice, begging God for his truth and righteousness, begging God for his kingdom to come. He's doing what we do every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. But how do we to respond to this? I can, I can feel the kind of anxiety level going up in the room. Well, the thing is, we in the West, we in the liberal West, we in the wealthy liberal West, we don't cope with the presence of evil in the world. And habitually, we try to avoid dealing with it. So you might remember at the Port Arthur Massacre, when uh, uh, Martin Bryant was eventually caught, uh, when, when they had his pictures in the paper, they kind of distorted his eyes so he looked as if he was mad. And he wasn't mad at all. He was perfectly sane. But we wanted to think that he was mad because we couldn't believe that a perfectly sane person would engage in massacre. That's how hard we find it to cope with intentional evil. That's because we have an optimistic view of human nature and we are then generally unprepared for intentional evil. That is true politically and socially as well as personally. Intentional evil seems unnatural to us. But as a matter of fact, 
intentional evil is part of human nature. I well remember uh, in primary school, there was a particularly revolting boy on the jungle gym. So I found a very sharpish rock and threw it at him, hoping to gash his leg. Had he done anything wrong to me? Not at all. He was just an unpleasant person. And it seemed to me that unpleasant people deserve some kind of punishment. Well, unfortunately, the rock missed him and hit the jungle gym and bounced back and took the back of my scalp off, which is a warning to everybody. <laughs> Don't engage in unnecessary vindictive evil. It might come and bite you. I was asked, of course, who threw that rock? Well, you, I could scarcely say, I threw it and I missed. So I said, I'm afraid I do not, cannot tell you. Well, actually, I could tell them, but it was polis, better policy, I think, not to admit to such incompetence. <laughs> and, of course, in our world, we are so concerned with our own happiness, we underestimate the serious significance of deliberate and continued sin against God. We think that doesn't matter too much, in the words of the, the great philosopher, God will forgive, that's his business. And as a sign of that, we might read the Bible selectively and avoid the difficult bits. And I think we hear too much bad news through the media, so then we want church to be an escape. A friend of mine is a minister, and a parishioner said on the way out, I want church to be a feel-good experience. My friend said, why don't you go to the movies? But of course, if you do go to the movies, here's the irony. We can't cope with evil, but we love looking at it. Isn't that, on fiction, isn't that bizarre? A very odd feature of our character. And we create games with evil characters in them. Isn't that weird? When we can't actually cope with evil in real life. Then, of course, we need to put this piece of the jigsaw in the context of the New Testament. Please notice, as in the Old Testament, so in the New Testament, God continues to be kind to evil people. As Jesus says, he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And, again in the Sermon on the Mount, he calls us to love our enemies. So rather than hating enemies, God calls us to love enemies. And that, I think, is a distinctive Christian call, which we must heed. Notice, too, that God loves to make his enemies into his friends. Indeed, we were all enemies of God, Paul tells us. But we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. And how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Or as, he, uh, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, be reconciled to God. Where we, we are by nature God's enemies opposed to God. But we're continually called to be reconciled to God. The instruction in uh, 2, 2 Corinthians 5.20 is actually addressed to the church at Corinth. Isn't that amazing? 
God's saying to the church, you must be reconciled to me again. You must return to me. And we're saved only through Jesus taking our sins on himself. As his cousin John called out, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or as uh, Peter wrote, we've heard this once already, uh, Christ suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And we are not to take revenge, Romans 12. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. Notice the two sides of that. One side is we mustn't take revenge, though it's a very natural feeling. But the other side of it is because vengeance is God's job. He is the ruler of the world. Now, uh, it, you, you will not get through life without experiencing some enmity, someone who doesn't like you, someone who is unjust towards you, someone who treats you unjustly. It's so important to be ready for that and not to take revenge. But as Peter puts it so beautifully in 1 Peter, that Jesus, uh, when he suffered unjustly, entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Isn't that beautiful? He entrusted himself to God because God judges justly. And as Jesus says, those who oppose Christ are his enemies. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. And Paul writes, many live as enemies of the cross of God. So there are not just, it's not possible not only to be an enemy of God, but an enemy of Christ. Even the Christ who died for you. And we also need to know that Jesus currently rules over his enemies. The verse uh, which is uh, repeated so frequently in the New Testament. Christ must reign until God has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I once asked a theology class at Ridley, what is Christ doing now? The general reply was having a rest after the, uh, you know, the, all the bother of the death and resurrection and so forth, and giving the Holy Spirit his go, and then Christ will return and sort things out. That's not so at all. Christ is really busy at present. He is seated at the Father's right hand. He is waiting for his enemies to be put under his feet. He is praying for us. He's praying for the conversion of his enemies. Because Christ, like God, wants to make his enemies into his friends. And Jesus taught those who oppose God will suffer on the last day. Jesus said, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It's so frequently said that the God of the Old Testament is full of wrath and anger and so forth, but the God of the New Testament is placid and kind and more like Father Christmas. Well, pay attention to the warning of Jesus. And for those who love the Hallelujah Chorus in uh, Handel's Messiah, 
who is everybody's Messiah, of course. Uh, the Hallelujah Chorus actually comes from Revelation 19, and it's a response to the destruction, the destruction of wicked Babylon in chapter 18. If you like the Hallelujah Chorus, please read Revelation 18 and 19. And the perfect justice of God will only be done when Christ returns. Until then, we have to suffer injustice like Jesus. However, and I often say this to people, uh, if you're suffering unjustly, it's not wrong to, 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 ask, to ask for justice, as Paul famously does when he's been imprisoned unlawfully, he appeals to Caesar. And we should act with loving justice toward others. Love does no harm to a neighbor, so love is the fulfillment of the law. And the final piece of the jigsaw I want to share with you. Every time we pray, your kingdom come, or come Lord Jesus, we are praying for God's just and perfect and glorious future when his enemies will be judged and his saints vindicated and rewarded. We don't see God's enemies around us, do we? But if you today were one of a number of Christians who are going to be put to death for your faith, you'd realize that there are human enemies of God who want to exterminate believers. And if you're in that situation, I think you might cry out to the God of justice to act, to save you and to save your children. Not worrying about justice is a privilege of the wealthy and well-fed. So every time we pray, your kingdom come, or come Lord Jesus, we're praying for God's just future, where his enemies will be judged and his saints vindicated and rewarded. And of course, the best places in that new heaven and the new earth will be given to those humble saints who've done nothing in particular except die as they witness to Christ. And only then can we understand the significance of the last two verses so familiar to us. Well, if this is what we're praying, or what David is praying, the appropriate response must be to the God who searches us. Search me and know my thoughts. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's a prayer 
We're going to pray it together now. Please say the words after me. Search me, God, and know my heart. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. And lead me in the way everlasting. Through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. Amen.